Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon, everybody. Happy Friday, and welcome to the beginning of the Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. If you haven't been part of this before, what we like to do around late December every year is go back and share interviews that we did over the last 12 months. Um, partially just because this is something that we feel is worth discussing again. And also, it's a fun way to look back at some stories that you may have forgotten about because it's been several months since they were in the news. So, for example, I will give you one spoiler. Coming up later in this countdown, we'll be discussing that um, sub that went missing looking for the Titanic back in June. For about two weeks, that was at the front of everybody, everybody's news feed. And just this cycle of news, it kind of you know fell off the, to the back burner. And so that one of the reasons we do this countdown, again, is it's just a way to look back and remember some of these stories. And it's funny, you know, the countdown is a list of, of top interviews. And we're actually starting with a list in the number one um, spot on the countdown, or rather number 34. It's the, the first one we'll be looking back with. The uh, legal blog, Law and Liberty, asked a bunch of legal scholars to rank what they considered to be the worst uh, SCOTUS decisions of all time. And then everybody kind of wrote in their answers, and they counted up the ones that were voted the most uh, consistently, and they kind of gave them all a score. And, of course, probably isn't surprising, number one on that list is Dred Scott, number two is Roe v. Wade. But after that, it gets interesting, because you've got others like uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Buck v. Bell. If you're a legal scholar, if you're somebody who studied history, really, if you're somebody who's listened to Cresta in the afternoon, we've talked about a lot of these many times over the years. But you've got other cases on this list that, unless you're a serious legal scholar, you've probably never even heard of. And uh, Dean Zerneski does a great job in this interview, helping us to understand why these made the list. So, for example, something like Dred Scott back in 1857, notorious, be- A, because it just it little, denied the humanity of African Americans, but l- larger so because of some of the larger historical context. A lot of historians would say, you know, that Dred Scott case had a very direct link to the start of the Civil War. Um, thankfully, that was overturned. You've got people who would say, you know, Roe v. Wade, the classic point is, even people who support so-called abortion rights would say that Roe v. Wade was very poorly argued, which led to it being overturned last year, of course, in uh, the Dobbs case. And so let's uh, kick it off at number 34 in the countdown. What are the worst Supreme Court decisions of all time? Dean John Zarnetsky from the Ave Maria School of Law joining us after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, December 15th. It's the Feast of St. Mary de Rosa. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. The Vatican has decided to shut down the religious community of sisters co-founded by accused abuser Father Marco Rupnik. The dissolution must take place within one year. Rupnik co-founded the Loyola community with Sister Ivanka Hosta in Slovenia more than three decades ago. He was removed from the Jesuits in June following accusations of spiritual, psychological, and sexual abuse. Senators are delaying their holiday break to work on an immigration deal. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says negotiators from both parties in the White House will be working through the weekend. House Republicans, like Florida Representative Byron Donalds, insist major changes to immigration policy must come first. 
Our position in the House has been clear from day one, secure the border. Senate Republicans say they won't vote on USAID to Israel and Ukraine without an immigration deal to help secure the border. At least 26 people are injured after a lawmaker detonated grenades at a village meeting in Ukraine. The meeting was being live-streamed on Facebook, and it shows the man reach into his pocket and drop the grenades on the floor, leading to explosions. There's no word on why the man carried out the attack. An Oklahoma neighborhood once known as the Black Wall Street could become a national monument. Senators James Lankford and Cory Booker have filed a bill in Congress that would make the designation. The Greenwood neighborhood was the site of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, when white mobs attacked the neighborhood and killed and injured hundreds of people. And a government report shows inflation is on track to hit the 2% Federal Reserve target in 2024. Congressional Budget Office forecast predicts annual inflation will continue its downward trend from this year's nearly 3% average. From your AviMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. LawLiberty.org asked self-identified conservative and libertarian legal scholars to send in their own list of what they considered to be the court's worst opinions. They compiled a list of the 20 cases mentioned most often, sent it back to scholars asking them to rank uh, the worst opinion, the second worst, etc. And then they compiled a list of the the worst 20 Supreme Court decisions. And when I saw this, I thought this was a great opportunity to talk with the dean of the Ave Maria School of Law, John Larnetsky. He also serves as legal advisor to the Holy See's mission to the United Nations, representing the Holy See in negotiations, and including establishing the International Criminal Court and several international treaties, including one on the rights of persons with disabilities. Dean Zarnetsky is a lay member of the Dominican Order, like myself, by the way, and a third-degree Knight of Columbus. John, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Um, uh, it's a real privilege to appear. Yes, this is this is a decision. I'm glad we, we were able to get back together. I was so frustrated when we had only one segment last time. We crammed a lot in. But I want to go back and, and actually do a little bit of review because of the... Um, some of these decisions, we've talked Roe v. Wade before, uh, I'll pass on that, um, but let, let's go back to the, these decisions dealing with race and ethnicity to begin with. So we started talking about with the Dred Scott decision, Dred Scott v. Sanford from 1857. Uh, give us a, a quick summary of that. Uh, yes, um, that's generally considered, and in this survey from the Law and Liberty blog, it uh, uh, confirms that that's uh, the worst case in Supreme Court history. Reasonable minds can differ, but that's, it's a pretty good choice for that. <laughs> right. uh, because it was a case in 1857, so what was happening in 1857, a great deal of conflict that hadn't turned into a shooting war yet about race and slavery. And the Supreme Court actually thought uh, that it was helping to solve that issue uh, with their opinion. It had the opposite effect. That's why it's considered a a part of the reason it's considered a terrible case. On the law, what it held is pretty easy to express. 
uh, the Supreme Court of the United States and Dred Scott held that blacks are not citizens of the United States uh, under the Constitution and therefore had no standing. They didn't have the legal ability to sue for their freedom, right. which, of course, is a right of all uh, citizens of the United States. So they, it, it was an interesting legal strategy, a bold one, Dred Scott personally was a very brave man. Um, but uh, the Supreme Court uh, held that uh, black Americans were not citizens of the United States. Now, let's go. We, the civil right, uh, the civil right, I mean, the Civil War amendments, you know, over, really, the Civil War and then the Civil War amendments basically overturned Dred Scott v. Sanford. But let's, let's jump to 1896. With the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, this is uh, dealing with what happened uh, after the Civil War and during the era of Reconstruction in the South. So tell us about Plessy. Yes, uh, very quickly. And you have to forgive me, Al, I'm a law professor, so I'll try to, <laughs> to, to, to be quick instead of pedantic and long-winded. But uh, one of the Civil War amendments that you reference quite rightly is the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment has a number of clauses in it. In fact, if you look at these 20 cases, I would say the majority of them have something to do with the 14th Amendment. Wow. When I studied constitutional law, it's no different now. Uh, the constitutional law course was probably two-thirds about the 14th Amendment. Wow. Um, so Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, in the, you know, not too long after the Civil War, the question was presented that under the 14th Amendment, uh, everyone is entitled uh, to uh, equal protection under the laws. And the 14th Amendment, very importantly, applies to states. So it was a revolution in our law, in our Constitution, to have an amendment, a con federal constitutional amendment, that prescribes what the liberties are against state law. Mm -hmm. Previously, the Fifth Amendment, the Constitution, the other, constitu the other amendments applied to the federal government. Now, in the wake of the Civil War, we have these amendments that say what states cannot do. And so the 14th Amendment says all, uh, all people are entitled to equal protection of the law. And the question in the case was, uh, many states in the wake of the Civil War and Reconstruction uh, were maintaining separate school districts and, frankly, all kinds of other facilities mm -hmm. um, under the theory that, yes, uh, black Americans and white Americans are both entitled to equal protection of the law, but as long as the water fountain set aside for black people provided water, we could have a separate water fountain. We could have a separate school mm -hmm. for African Americans than from white Americans, as long as the the, the schools or the water fountains, etc., were essentially equal. Now, the truth is, one of the reasons this is a horrible decision <laughs> is they were not equal. <laughs> right. That was the whole point. Uh, but the court turned a blind eye to a, to a large extent, in fact, completely to that simple fact. And so that that's a black mark, I think, on the on the court. It, the, the case fails because these were not equal facilities. Yeah. But in any event, they took they took for granted that 
schools, and that was um, uh, the case here, were equal. The black schools and the white schools, the segregated schools were equal, and the court held that because they were equal, the 14th Amendment requirement of equal protection was met. In yeah. other words, yeah. the court blessed segregation. Yeah. Yeah, and th- this this case is also known for a great uh, dissent, often lone dissenters. And and for your audience, I would cite uh, the great Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, sometimes that lone dissenter who is ridiculed in his time uh, is vindicated in history. And uh, a, a justice named John Marshall Harlan uh, wrote a dissent that is still famous for the for the very simple statement: "Our Constitution is colorblind." <laughs> and so, when we maintain facilities that are different based on color, that is immediately suspect. Yeah, it took uh, what's fifty-eight years for this decision to be overturned if if brown versus board of education is the decision that overturned that's about 58 years isn't that's it? right yeah that's correct wow um and you're, you're a little uh, i was a chemistry major and my math used to be good but you're a little quicker than i am but yes <laughs> approximately 58 years now it took a long time um for that decision to be overturned and uh, Brown is not on this list. In fact, it would be on the list of the best decisions, probably. Yeah. But one thing to remember about Brown, a uh, very uh, bold decision of the Supreme Court whenever they just uh, overturn completely a previous case. They usually do that bit by bit. Mm-hmm. So they did that in Brown. But even then, uh, uh states and governments did not immediately comply with Brown. Right. That took a number of years before there was widespread compliance in some parts of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me jump to an, another decision here, which has to do with ethnicity, and that's the Korematsu versus United yes. States decision. This is, uh, I, I think it's, it's pretty well known. I mean, uh, the Ten weeks after the U.S. entered World War II, President Roosevelt signed this executive order, uh, 9066, and it authorized the Secretary of War in the armed forces to remove people of Japanese ancestry from what they designated as military areas and surrounding communities. These were off-limits to Japanese aliens and Japanese-American citizens. This opened the door to relocation of more than 120,000 Japanese. It, it's hard to imagine that today, but it wasn't that long ago. No, it, it wasn't that long ago, and um, I certainly agree with this uh, decision being on the list. So what I'm about to say should not be taken as my support for the decision. Sure. Quite the opposite. Um, but one must also... Uh, I think I forget who said it, Al, but somebody said, you know, the Supreme Court justices do read the newspapers. <laughs> uh, it's, and I, I assume that's true. Uh, it, you have to remember what was going on. It was a first attack on the United States uh, sure. homeland. And so people were scared. Uh, on the other hand, we have this branch of government, nine justices in a court, that is has plenary power. I mean, they're in charge of what they do. There is nothing, and they have life tenure. 
and their salaries can't be cut. Mm-hmm. So it, we have given them all the protection they need to do what is correct under our Constitution. So having said that, you know, it was a difficult time, of course, and they're American citizens, they're concerned. But on the other hand, uh, this makes the list because it, it is an incorrect interpretation of our Constitution. Essentially, the court held that national security uh, trumps even American citizens' right to liberty. Yeah. And, uh, and that did not require any individualized showing against the Japanese Americans that were interned under uh, this uh, executive order. Uh, that really is a, a, a black mark on our Constitution mm-hmm. uh, to say that without particularized um, showing of, you know, crimes or being a threat to national security that we're going to intern an entire uh, race or much of uh, people based on their race um, because of national security concerns. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is, uh, these decisions are are really interesting because uh, it's, I generally try to assume goodwill on the part of all the participants. And in this case, they decided that military necessity was the real issue at hand, not racial discrimination. Right. I, you know, and you say to yourself, "Well, how would I have decided that?" Uh, you know, we're just we, we we've just, we've been attacked by Japan. I'd like to think uh, I would have decided on behalf of uh, of uh, Fred Korematsu. And you sometimes I'll wonder. I'll tell you a story when we come okay. back about one of the justices that's interesting on that case. Very good. My guest, John Zarnetsky, Dean of the Ave Maria School of Law. We're looking over the worst Supreme Court decisions in our history. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mother Angelica said that the essence of evangelization is to tell everyone that Jesus loves you. Matt Frad says that it is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Are we so full of the things of the world that we can't hear or receive the gifts that God is giving to us? In Isaiah, we hear, The Lord delights in you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Well, we often don't want to hear that, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it it hits us over the head even more that we're invited to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. The Beatitudes are the eight roads to God. They lead us with his gifts of the Holy Spirit to become the new person in Christ who will find happiness and bring that happiness to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. What does the Catholic Catechism mean when it says Jesus teaches us to pray with filial boldness? Filial boldness means praying like the son or daughter that we are. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will receive it, and you will, Jesus says. The key is the faith that does not doubt. Jesus was disheartened by his neighbors and his own disciples' lack of faith. He greatly admired the great faith exhibited by the Roman centurion and the Canaanite woman. Of what does the prayer of faith consist? 
It contains the disposition of the heart to do the will of the Father, a concern for cooperating with the divine plan. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. In addition to conversion and faith, Jesus calls us to watchfulness, attentive to him who is and him who comes, in memory of his first coming in the flesh and in hopefulness of his second coming in glory. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. Isn't it awesome that we today do not recognize His presence in the Eucharist? Is it because we really don't go to Him in humbleness of heart and say, Lord, I don't believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I want to see you. I want to recognize you. I cannot live without you. Are we saying that? EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. The best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 34. <laughs> Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is the Dean of the Ave Maria School of Law, John Zarnetsky. We've been talking over the a list of the 20 worst Supreme Court decisions. And uh, before the break, we were talking about the uh, Korematsu decision, which was the decision <clears throat> uh, by the Supreme Court that uh, approved the, um, how would you put, the, the rounding up of Japanese citizens, uh, allowing ultimately 120,000 of them uh, to be taken from their homes and put into, uh, well, what some people call concentration camps. I do not know what the conditions were there. But anyways, uh, the fact of them being displaced like this and relocated is uh, pretty traumatic. But I was saying before the break that Look, I, don't, I hate it when people practice what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. 
that somehow, from our vantage point today, we are somehow more evolved, uh, more advanced, uh, more progressive than uh, those who preceded us. And so I'd like to think that in the case of Fred Korematsu, that I would have uh, supported him in this decision. But there were a lot of Supreme Court justices who said, look, this is not about race. It's about military necessity. You were going to tell us a story uh, about this. Yeah, just very quickly. um, One of the justices who dissented was a man named Robert Jackson. And I think Justice Jackson grew up not far from where I did in upstate New York. But he also, I think, was the last justice, if I'm not mistaken, to have not attended law school. He uh, (laughs) studied for the bar with a lawyer like Abraham Lincoln did. But the reason I bring him up, he had written in a previous, he he was a very prominent lawyer, and he had written in a previous decision of the Supreme Court that the U.S. Constitution is not a suicide pact, meaning if, if we are interpreting on the Supreme Court a constitutional right to the point that it would actually endanger the society, yeah. we're doing something wrong. Right. Right. Now, you would have thought that Justice Jackson would be in the majority in the later Korematsu case, where the, they, the justices knew full well that rounding up American citizens and putting them in internment camps violates our liberty yeah. under the Constitution. Right. Right. The question is whether it's outweighed by the national security, which also society has a right to that. So Jackson, uh, as you just sort of alluded to, Al, Jackson said, look, uh, we, we defer to the military. We, we, we have to defend our country, we, and we judges should not interfere with that unless. And the unless part is, is really important. He points out uh, that here, there's, this is clearly unconstitutional if, without the national security aspect. And it's a difficult decision, but Jackson, in his dissent, said he would have uh, overturned this order because something of this gravity, he says, if I get the quote right, I'm going by memory, is like a loaded gun just sitting there. And maybe it's the right thing to do now. But that gun, somebody's going to pick it up and it's going to go off metaphorically. In other words, we permit this type of egregious violation. This war will pass. But what effects that will have in the future uh, in legal proceedings, we can't predict. And he was not willing to go that far. I think he's an interesting case. He, he, that's the Jackson of the Nuremberg trials? Yes. Okay. He, I, yeah. I should have mentioned that. He was the, I said he was a prominent lawyer, more than merely prominent. He was the, the lead prosecutor at, at Nuremberg. Yeah. Uh, and that before uh, uh, he went on the court. Yeah. So. Let's go to a, a decision that w- w- was a, a mess. Uh, Regents of the University of California versus Baki. Um, this involved a dispute whether preferential treatment for minorities reduced educational opportunities for whites um, without violating the Constitution. Uh, set it up for us. Yes. Uh really interesting case and you know one of the great things about going to law school al it's it's advanced civics it, it really is yes I, that's right I, I, I thought i knew what, how the world worked and why it looked <laughs> the way it did before but law school really was an education for me and baki is just one of many examples of that baki is the case from which we uh, get 
the 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 word diversity and it's a, think of how often we hear the word diversity in 2023 yeah. uh well that comes directly from a concurring opinion by Justice Powell in the Bakke case. So I forget what Mr. Bakke's first name it may Alan. Be Alan. It was. Bakke, Alan. But Mr. Bakke, well, you know, first year of law school was a long time ago, but some things you don't forget. <laughs> so Alan Bakke had applied uh, to uh, medical school, I believe it was, in the University of California, and he was turned down. And uh, as I remember, he was able to present evidence that less qualified applicants were admitted. And so he claimed uh, that that was a, a violation of um, uh, his rights of equal protection, due process of law, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, that he was, in other words, being discriminated against based on race. And the Supreme Court in that case, they did one thing that is very good and then one thing that has led to, to continuing social controversy. Mm -hmm. um, they said they absolutely uh, outlawed or affirmed that quotas in state law based on race uh, violate our Constitution. Okay. So the, the University of California could not say uh, in their admission standards that we're going to have X people of such race okay. in being admitted no matter what into their med school. But in a concurring opinion that, because of the complexity of Supreme Court opinions, sort of became controlling precedent, uh, Justice Powell uh, wrote that uh, it is a legitimate interest of California, and therefore the University of California, to take into consideration diversity, mm -hmm. that uh, ensuring that there's a diverse class in a medical school or a law school is good for everyone in that class to be exposed to different people um, and, and to have different viewpoints, etc. And slowly, and so that was, um, I don't think that opinion received a majority of votes, but because it was the controlling vote, you know, it was yeah, the one yeah. vote that put them over the top. That was a very important opinion by Justice Powell. And that idea of diversity, just as we've gone forward 40, 50 years uh, since then, uh, that idea of diversity has, has really seized, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, institutions of higher learning yeah. in their admissions process. You may not have a quota. I've been on admissions committees of, of law schools, and I can tell you, even the most fervent uh, believers in uh, what's now called DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, inclusion yeah. uh, mm -hmm. they don't they don't say we must have this quota because that's unconstitutional. Um, but the the diversity idea, as some people would say, as a thinly veiled quota, others would say, no, we're just doing what Justice Powell said. Um, because of that opinion, the, the questions over race and the, the uh, role of race in admissions and other types of government decision-making has not gone away. In fact, I would say it's burgeoned yeah. uh, since this case. I, in the, I noticed in, in preparing for conversation today that th there is actually six different opinions in this case. Yes. I mean, you have nine justices and six uh, different opinions. That, that should 
be something of a red flag, shouldn't it? That there's, this is well, not it, that easy to decide. It, it was not easy. Now, there, there's another interesting, this is sort of culture of Supreme Court point, um, that dissents were, or, or excuse me, that number of opinions is was unusual for the first 100, 150 years of the Supreme Court. In the 20th century, particularly the latter half of the 20th century, we have a multiplication of opinions. Mm. And that kind of fragmenting of the court, um, it, it people would argue, and I, I'm sympathetic to this, uh, uh, hurts the court's legitimacy. Uh, so, for example, when the court was considering Brown versus Board of Education, they, they were far from unified, according to reports. It's mm-hmm. hard to know for sure. But the chief justice at the time, uh, Earl Warren, uh, uh, went around and ensured that the, that case was a uh, unanimous decision. Because of the gravity of the Brown decision, right. uh, unanimity was important. Yeah. That was a wise yeah. decision, yeah. I think. And it led to the greater legitimacy of that very controversial, uh, that opinion that was going to cause discord. Um, a case like Bakke, where there's such a divided court, it, it, people naturally say, well, what am I to make of this? Exactly, and, yeah. You know, what is the controlling rule here? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, yeah. you're exactly right to, to focus on that. Let me bring up a case that I, I actually never heard of before. It's United States okay. uh, versus Caroline Products Company from 1938. Yes. Um, the United States Supreme Court upheld the federal government's power to prohibit filled milk from being shipped in interstate commerce. It doesn't sound too exciting. <laughs> Tell me about no, it. <laughs> uh, not exciting at all. And again, I'm going uh, by memory, but uh, law school has a way of imprinting things on your memory forever. <laughs> Caroline Products uh, is remembered, a uh, very important case for, I think it's footnote four, but don't you... you constitutional mavens out there don't call al if i've got the number (laughs) wrong Uh, but there's a footnote in the case that has a very very important effect that we still see today in fact it's it's this is bubbling up in news coverage of the supreme court as it has over the decades since the case and that is uh, caroline products established the idea of deference to legislative decisions. So think of yourself as a judge, and a a plaintiff brings a case and says, my constitutional rights are violated by this statute that this state just passed. Mm -hmm. Who do you defer to? How do you make that decision? Do you defer to the legislature? Do you say the constitution? In any event, um, I can explain it a little bit. Sure, we'll pick it up on the other side of the break. Very good. Yeah. Thank you, John. Great. I'm talking with the Dean of Javier School of Law, John Zarnetsky. We're looking over 20 worst decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. 
More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. We just did our parish mission a couple weeks ago now. And I suggested that in the course of the mission that we do something like a a little mini spiritual assessment of our lives. I don't have to show this to anybody, but a great chance for us just uh, with real honesty, just between us and Jesus, ask ourselves some questions. First question, given the fact that half of Catholics don't think God is even personal, would be to ask ourselves that. Do I think God is personal? And then to ask myself, do I think a relationship with Jesus is possible? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? And if so, what's it look like? And then perhaps a little bit more awkwardly or painfully to ask Jesus from his perspective, what's the friendship that we have with him look like? How would he describe our friendship with him? That might be a hard conversation to have. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Parents often resort to scolding, coaxing, or even bribing to get our kids to help with household chores. But what if I told you there's a more effective approach? The next time your child does anything helpful, pause to appreciate them. Say something like, hey, I noticed you put away your dirty dishes without being asked. Thanks for that. It's really thoughtful and responsible of you. You can even put a cherry on the top of your gratitude with a warm hug, a fist bump, or some other sign of affection. A few words of thanks are much more powerful than a whole paragraph of nagging or criticizing. Over time, you'll notice that these expressions of gratitude not only encourage more helpfulness from your kids, but more gratitude too. Get more great parenting tips at catholichom.com or check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace or Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon. Countdown. Number 34. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is the Dean of the Ave Maria School of Law, John Zardetsky. 
we've been taking a look at a list of the worst Supreme Court decisions in our history. And we were talking about the case of the United States uh, versus Caroline Products Company, and um, known for its uh, footnote four. And we were just uh, getting towards the end of that. And John, I wanted you to finish that up, the point that you were making. Sure. Yeah, just very quickly, Al. Um, it established, and it, you know, it, it, it's part of the context of the progressive era, and uh, it established the idea that judges should give great deference uh, to the decisions of legislatures. So um, the, 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 the rule that came from it that the lawyers in the audience will well recognize from studying for the bar is that as long as a statute has a rational basis, as long as we can articulate some rational reason, and that's not a very high standard right. for the legislator having passed the, the statute, then, then we're going to let the legislation stand. Mm. Uh, that's a set, so it's a very now the the courts develop stricter standards in cases where you know uh, race was involved and other things like that but for the most part it represents strong deference to legislatures okay uh, but generally we like that don't we well, generally we like that um, but what happens if a legislature passes something, these were the early cases, that conflicts with my liberty of contract, sure. um, which is also a, a liberty. It's actually protected yeah. in the Constitution. Yeah. We're, we're um, going to jump well, over the Lochner decision, yeah. which would be well yes. interesting to talk about uh, sometime in the future. But I did want to make sure we got to the church-state decisions, religious liberty yeah. decisions, and try to make some sense of them. Um, Everson versus Board of Education. Uh, this is the landmark decision that applied the establishment clause of the First Amendment to state law. Um, so, this was case was brought by a New Jersey taxpayer against a tax-funded school district that provided reimbursement to parents of both public and private school people taking the public transportation system to school. Um, the taxpayer contended that that reimbursement given for children attending private religious schools, violated the constitutional prohibition against state support of religion and violated the due process clause. Um, and that, so that this was decided that religious schools, in a certain sense, couldn't be considered as prof providing for the common good. Uh, the way That's how I would read this. Uh, in what sense are religious schools, um, you know, uh, not serving the common good here? But that was the argument. Uh, well, uh, yes, in a very real sense. That's the practical effect of the decision. Um, just two quick little background yeah, things please. about the case. Um, the, the, the case... And I hesitate to say this, because like you, I, I always ascribe goodwill to people. Yeah. But uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that I believe this decision, I hope I'm right about this, was the majority opinion was written by Justice Hugo Black. Yeah, that's right. Who was, uh, I believe he was from Alabama. He is revered <laughs> in law schools because he was an absolutist on freedom of speech. And he, he really was. And But 
there's also some shameful aspects to Justice Black's right. background. He he was a member of the KKK yep. uh, when he was, a, I think he was a senator from Alabama. And um, he supposedly, uh, according to some biographers, had a great deal of animus against Catholics. Yeah. Yeah. So the the in uh, the question is to what extent, if any, and I I don't know, right. uh, were Justice Black's freedom of religion cases animated in part by animus? Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. We'll never know. Yeah. But uh, the certainly, the, certainly the Klan during the time that he would have been member, the Klan was explicitly anti-Catholic. So. Explicitly, yeah. and yeah. I hesitate because I I can't remember if this was something Justice Black said, but a number of those people joined the Klan uh, because of their anti-Catholic sentiments more than any other yeah. anti-group. But okay, having said that, another important thing is before the Fourteenth Amendment uh, made uh, li- certain liberties enforceable against the states, their states had established religions. That's right. Yes. Uh, so, so, you know, again, this is part of the revolution in our constitutional history that most citizens don't know about. I, I didn't know. But uh, so here we have the Supreme Court saying that the First Amendment prohibition on the federal government establishing a religion, a national religion, that it applies to the states. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, that's part of a larger topic for another time. So this doc, um, this is the Doctrine of Incorporation. This is the first time it's applied yes. to the uh, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment? Well, I'll, I'll be honest, Al. I don't remember if it's the first time. Okay. You'll have to forgive me on sure. that one. No, but it, it certainly is a decision, at a minimum, interpreting what the Establishment Clause means yeah. at the state level. Yeah. Yeah. And here, here, is, here is where uh, that phrase, wall of separation, which we hear in whenever we're talking about establishment, here's where that comes into our constitutional history. That, as many of your audience will know, that phrase, there must be a wall of separation between uh, the government and religion, so government can do nothing to to favor religion in any way or to benefit religion, comes from, I believe, a letter from Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, now, to the Danbury Baptists. Mr. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. I, I attended Mr. Jefferson's law school, so we're proud of Mr. Jefferson, but <laughs> he actually was not a framer of the Constitution, and that phrase is not in the Constitution. Right, right. So Justice Black, for better or worse, imported from, you know, one of the great founders, a phrase from a letter and said, this is now the rule. Wow. There, uh, any state law that has the effect in any way of benefiting even just a religious institution must uh, must fall. Yeah. And we're, we're still seeing the effects of that today. Uh, Engel v. Vitale, 1962, uh, they made it unconstitutional for state officials to compose an official school prayer uh, and encourage its recitation. Uh, that's a violation of the First Amendment. It is a pretty weak prayer. <laughs> you know, right. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. But that was considered a violation of the First Amendment. Yes, and here's the thing. That clearly had long-standing historical precedents. 
having prayer in school. Right, right. And secondly, um, it, as you just pointed out, it was an extraordinarily anodyne prayer. It was not <laughs> sectarian in any way. It was right. not the Hail Mary, right, which, right. by the way, I think we could probably, well, anyway, I don't want to be quoted saying that, but <laughs> okay. um, it was it was specifically designed to be uh, anodyne, not taking a position so that we, the, the school district couldn't be accused of trying to establish the Catholic religion, the Episcopal religion, right. whatever. Mm-hmm. But the court in that case, seizing on the reasoning of the prior um, Everson case that we just talked about, said, wall of separation, can't have praying. And if you believe that wall, you believe that metaphor is the controlling rule, the legal rule, well, then it's it's not illogical right. to say, well, we shouldn't have any prayer. That's right. But yeah. then you've got to explain to me how we've had 100 or 150 years of <laughs> prayers in school. I mean, that, it doesn't make sense. Right, right. Let's jump to Lemon v. Kurtzman, 1971. Um, this, this, is a, this is one that established a test uh, for uh, church-state decisions in the future. Set it up for me. Yes. Um, If I remember correctly, this had to do with um, reimbursing the salaries of, I think, Catholic teachers in schools uh, from, you know, taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the court, uh, this is uh, the bane of anyone that has studied for the bar exam, since 1971, you've had to learn the three-pronged test <laughs> right. that the court... Now, that test has, in the recent past, been rejected by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. But the, the court went through a period, a several-decade period, where they loved balancing tests uh, because they seem logical. And so the court said any, any law that has the, the effect of benefiting a religious institution, so that would include Catholic schools must meet the following three. Let me see if I can remember them from bar study. Number one, it must have a secular purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, it, it, the law can must be shown neither to prohibit or to encourage or benefit the uh, religion, the promotion of religion. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, the most famous one, I think, is there must be no excessive entanglement yeah. mm-hmm. of the government in religion. And um, so now we have Supreme Court justices uh, who tend to be well-educated. Their, their relative wisdom is for each of us to decide for ourselves whether they're prudent. But, but well-educated, but not necessarily wiser than any of us. Uh, our constitutional rights now depend on their judgment about those three yeah. um, prongs. Yeah. And so what is excessive entanglement in religion? Is Really, is reimbursing salaries for a Catholic school, is that really the government being yeah. excessively entangled right. in sectarian religion? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I might disagree with a lot of the, yeah. the justices on that. Let's go to this employment division, uh, um, uh, V. Smith. This is the Oregon decision. Yes. Uh, that was Justice Scalia wrote, and was has <laughs> it scandalized a lot of people? Set it up for us. Yes, um, and and here I I tread very lightly because <laughs> uh, J- 
Justice Scalia, if you know anything about Ave Maria Law School, you, <laughs> it won't surprise you to know that the dean is a big, big fan of Justice Scalia. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but there's an old phrase, even Homer nods. So even the greatest person uh, Sometimes, so I respectfully express some disagreement. Anyway, what happened here was, uh, uh, and I forget the name of the Indian tribe, forgive me, but it was in the southwest United States. Uh, there is an Indian tribe, maybe more than one, as part of their religious ceremonies, they smoke peyote. Mm-hmm. And peyote is uh, illegal to possess. I forget what class drug it is under federal law, but uh, then and now, peyote is uh, regulated to illegal to have uh, under federal law. And so the, the Indian tribe said, well, this is legitimately part of our religious service. It's like uh, uh, the, the elements of communion for a Catholic. And so we have a religious, we have a right uh, under uh, the First Amendment to practice our religion. So for us, they weren't arguing that peyote should be legalized for everybody, but for us, we should be permitted without consequence on things like employment benefits, et cetera, for using peyote, or unemployment benefits, Mm -hmm. I should say. And the Supreme Court held that while people have a right to practice their religion, if a law is generally applicable to everybody, not singling out the Indian tribe, then the law wins in this situation. Irregardless of whether these are sincerely held religious beliefs. Yes. And people speculate, why why is it? I think the court is reluctant to examine religious beliefs. But you know, maybe they have to Thank you so much, John. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer. Type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked, 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children? Advent is here and it's a new church year. What is your favorite liturgical season? That's our question in this week's Pull of the Week. 
Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the poll of the week to let us know. Good afternoon and welcome again to Crest in the Afternoon and uh, congratulations are going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. I want to be sure we get this in in this hour. Northern Apostle Radio up in Marquette, Michigan, celebrating 19 years with EWTN. Congratulations to Faye and Tim Presley and everybody else at WONA from all of your friends at EWTN Radio. Again, congrats to uh, Northern Apostle Radio in Marquette, Michigan. And thanks for being with us in this first hour as we kick off this 2023 Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. If you want to learn more about that list that we discussed the uh, it's called supreme failures from the court uh compiled by the uh legal scholars at the law and liberty blog and of course that will be in the uh crest to guest archives at ave maria radio.net and uh while you're there you can of course check out other things as well including information about our next guest because at number 33 in the countdown a voice you've heard many times over the years on ave maria radio our dear friend peter herbeck what is the fire of the lord Word fire appears more than 500 times in the Bible. As far as I know, none of those 500 times has anything to do with somebody losing their job. It has to do with the salvation of the Lord, the baptism of the Spirit, and more. Peter Herbeck from Renewal Ministries joining us as we continue our countdown in the next hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. We'll be right back. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. And thank you to everybody who joined us on yesterday's program as we opened up the phone lines asking you to share your favorite, uh, most edifying book titles that have impacted you over the last year. That's always one of my favorite shows to do. And uh, thanks to everybody who called in because it really keeps me on my toes and our board operator, Dan, uh, very, has to be very focused to make sure we handle all the calls. And if you missed that program or if you heard a book title but didn't have a chance to write it down at Ave Marie radio.net in our slider everything that was mentioned is there we also have recommendations for myself al and the rest of our staff and um, links to some other people like if you are interested in hearing uh, what george weigel's book topics of the year are that's uh, all linked again at ave maria radio.net and in this hour we continue our uh, day one of our 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. If you missed the last hour, we had number 34, looking with Dean John Zarnetsky of Ave Maria School of Law at the worst Supreme Court decisions of all time. And in this hour, we will hear number 33. What is the fire of the Lord? The word fire appears more than 500 times in the Bible. Of course, Christ made salvation possible through a baptism of fire, and the Lord hopes to accomplish much more in our lives through his holy flames. And our guest is the one and only Peter Herbeck, Executive Vice President and Director of Missions for Renewal Ministries. For more than 30 years now, Peter has been actively involved in evangelization and Catholic renewal throughout the U.S., Canada, 
Canada, Africa, and Europe. He's a co-host of the weekly television program, The Choices We Face, as well as Crossing the Goal on EWTN, and uh, hosts Fire on the Earth here at Ave Maria Radio. He and his wife, Debbie, have just written a great book, Lessons from the School of Love, Cultivating a Christ-Centered Marriage, and he is the author of the booklet, Receiving Fire, which you can find at RenewalMinistries.net. If you've ever heard Peter speak, you know he likes to spit fire, and he's going to be doing that with us over the next hour after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, December 15th. It's the Feast of St. Mary de Rosa. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. A murdered Nebraska Catholic priest will be laid to rest. Funeral services for Father Stephen Guckshell will take place Monday at St. Cecilia Cathedral in Omaha. Guckshell was found stabbed in the rectory of St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Fort Calhoun this past Sunday and died from his injuries. A 43-year-old suspect was arrested and is facing murder charges. Three Israeli hostages have died as they were mistakenly shot and killed by Israeli defense forces. IDF officials said the incident happened in a region in northern Gaza where Israeli soldiers have encountered numerous terrorists and suicide bombers. The IDF is apologizing for the incident. Court records show the FBI was tipped off by the social media platform Discord about a teenager's plans for a mass shooting at an Ohio synagogue. The FBI says the team was possibly coordinating with an individual in Washington state. The 13-year-old is scheduled to appear in court next week on charges of inducing panic and disorderly conduct. Jurors in Ruli Giuliani's defamation trial have awarded nearly $150 million to two Georgia election workers. Giuliani accused the workers of helping to steal the 2020 presidential election from Trump and was subsequently charged with spreading conspiracy theories about them. The workers say he destroyed their reputations and exposed them to vicious threats. And the Census Bureau is proposing a change its way to collect info on disabled people, and some experts warn it could end up drastically undercounting the disabled population. A test of the new questions last year saw people defined as having a disability drop from 14% to 8%. Advocates worry these numbers could have an impact on policymaking, research, and funding. From your AviMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 33. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Peter Herbeck, who longtime friend and uh, colleague. And, you know, it's always, it's always a problem when friends uh, join me here because... It feels unnecessary to give an introduction, but I'm going to give an introduction because your experience, people need to know what you've been doing for a few decades, all right? And they may not know that. Peter Herbeck is the Executive Vice President and Director of Missions for Renewal Ministries, and for more than 30 years, he's been actively involved in evangelization and Catholic renewal throughout the United States, Canada, Africa, and Eastern Europe. Peter's co-host for the weekly television program, The Choices We Face, and Crossing the Goal. He also hosts the daily radio show, Fire on the Earth. He and his wife, Debbie, have just co-written Lessons from the School of Love, Cultivating a Christ-Centered Marriage. And he's just uh, authored a booklet called Receiving Fire, uh, which was actually the occasion for our conversation today. You can follow his work at RenewalMinistries.net. Peter, it's good to see you here. Good to see you, too, Al. Great to be back. Thanks. Let's let's, uh, talk about this. Uh, So often, 
it seems to me that Catholics are interested in calling people to church before they've really wrestled with the idea of calling people to Christ. And, of course, we know uh, that there's a mystical union between Christ and his church. I'm not calling into question anything uh, that is taught by the magisterium of the Catholic Church. I'm talking about something that happens sociologically, though. Uh, because the church is massive, because it is highly developed, because it has its sacraments and its hierarchy and its vestments and its properties, uh, there's a certain self-satisfaction uh, that comes about from being part of such a universal, internationalist, transgenerational, ancient, but always present institution. When you come and begin reading the scriptures, and you read that the Holy Spirit is like a wind that goes where he will, you hear about the Lord as fire, fire of purification, fire of glory, fire of judgment, all of a sudden you realize the message of the gospel is not, doesn't really do that well if you think it's only an institutional message. You're encou- when you're talking about the gospel, you're talking about the encounter with a living person, not simply membership in an institution. Talk to me about receiving fire. Yeah, uh, well, this um, kind of originated, uh, I was giving some talks on the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you have there at the beginning of the letter is John, who is uh, uh, is the centerpiece there. He's on the island of Patmos, and he is, on the Lord's Day, he ends, He has a, basically a vision of the Lord, I guess you'd say here. And uh, the Lord appeared to him, and I found it very interesting, uh, and it really, the reason I've been talking about it is because, who here's John, uh, he's under persecution of trial, he's in prison, I think, is he not on the island? He's got, he's a shepherd of seven churches that Jesus Jesus wants him to write a letter to the seven churches on his behalf. Jesus is the Lord. He's the one who his church is in his hands. He'll show and he's trying to he's encouraging John. And it's interesting what the Lord's strategy is to bring encouragement to a shepherd who is under tremendous trial, rejection, persecution. He actually begins the letter then. He writes, and you and I have spoken about this before, to the seven churches he begins, he says, I, John, share with you the tribulation, the kingdom, Right yep. and the patient endurance, and yep. so John's describing what is really in history the normal Christian life. That's right. It really is yeah. in a certain tribulation, uh, yeah. the kingdom, patient and, endurance. And what is the what is the good shepherd? Uh, what what does he know John most needs in this time of struggle, difficulty, difficult circumstances? The Lord gives him a revelation yes. of who he is. His glory, His majesty, His victory, the risen Christ in glory. And what ends up happening is just a beautiful description of it there in the first chapter. And it says, uh, John sees Him, and one of the things he sees is the Lord, His eyes are flaming fire. And that fire, you know, the Scripture says the, the eye is the window to the soul, right to the core of the being. And to me, as I was meditating on that passage, it's like, 
you're seeing the heart of Jesus. What's what's at the in the heart of the glorified humanity of Jesus Christ? One of us, right? Yeah. Remember, remember how it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that the Messiah was coming and he was going to give us a new heart. Right? Right, right, that we had a heart of stone. What we needed was a new heart, and God's wisdom and His magnificent plan. God becomes one of us in Jesus. He takes on human flesh. That the rest of us are fallen. Right, our hearts are hardened. We're under sin. We're under the reign of sin and death, and we we have a condition we can do nothing about on our own. God sends His Son for God so loved the world to you know to bring us into eternal life. And how He does it is Jesus becomes one of us. And he dies on a cross giving perfect love to the Father, making an offering of himself. You know, I love Philippians 2. I talk about this all the time. Friends of mine are getting tired of me talking about it. But he said at Philippians 2, he humbled himself, becoming obedient, even unto death, death on a cross, right? And so the love language of heaven is what? Obedience, Jesus said. Yeah. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. You see this in Gethsemane. This was not easy. Right. This exactly. was not cheap. This yeah. was something that even as close to the crucifixion as uh, he was, in Gethsemane, he's still praying, take this cup yeah. if possible. And on that cross is a pure heart of love that's being offered yeah. saying yes to the father and then it says and father the father was so delighted in him he raised him up and he's exalted him so in Jesus's resurrected humanity he enters into the glory of heaven and as he enters into the glory of heaven humanity is now clothed in glory yeah. and the glory of god the eternal what we're seeing through the eyes of jesus is the furnace of burning love from all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is now burning in a human heart. And John falls at his feet as though dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the impact he has. Yeah. You know? He doesn't yeah. say, how long is this service going to last? You know? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And he's laying there having encountered the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of Jesus. And then Jesus says what? The Lord says what? You know, be not afraid, right? He said, he touches John, and he said, be not afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. And then he gives him a revelation. He goes on in the revelation. He says, John said he saw seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. Yeah. And this glorious one was standing right in the middle of the seven churches. So, brothers and sisters, if you're scratching your head these days and you're wondering a little bit like, where's the Lord? Look at society. Look at culture. Look at the troubles of the church and you're discouraging. Yep. Take up this passage and behold the Lord. He, Where is he? He's standing right in the midst of the churches. And then the seven... Um, flames in the hands of Jesus represent that what the shepherds, this you know the seven the shepherds of the pastors of the mm-hmm. churches, and he, Jesus is showing John where he wants the shepherds to know you're in my hands. I'm the living one. Yeah. I hold the keys of death in Hades. I'm absolutely in charge. I'm the pure one. I'm the great one, the holy one, and I'm with you. And that's where it starts. That's where it needs to start for us. And that is and and to behold the. The holy God, the mighty God, the glorious one, Jesus. And we see in Jesus, in glory, our future, but we also see where he wants to lead us, which is into the, into the depths of the pure 
love of the Father yeah. and the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is, it is worth mentioning, it's mentioned many times by many people, but this encounter with the living God evokes initially fear. Yeah. Something, something you, you feel as though you're no longer in control. Yeah. of the moment. Uh, yeah. You're not entirely certain what's to come. There's some apprehension here. Um, you know, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis gets at this when he talks about Aslan the lion, that he's um, not safe. Yeah, he's not a tame lion, he's right? not a tame right? lion. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the, the encounter with the holy God. Um, and what is interesting, too, from, again, from the standpoint of just history uh, of religions, is this encounter with holiness pops up all over the place. Uh, within the Christian tradition, it's given a special clarity because of divine revelation. But you do find that even outside uh, the Christian tradition, that there's an encounter with the holy God, or the holy thing, or the holy something, which produces fear. Yep. You know, Of course, within the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, we... Uh, not simply, we just don't have a raw religious experience. We receive uh, revelation, which helps us interpret that experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and you notice passages both in the Old Testament, like when Elijah, when he called down fire, yeah. uh, right? And, and the, against the prophets of Baal, you know, and he calls down yeah. fire, and the fire of God comes and consumes the sacrifice. And what's the response of everybody who was there? Yeah. They fell to the ground. They fell on their faces in the presence of the holy God. That's a moment of sanity. It is. That's that's a moment. And the trembling that happens is really healthy. Yeah. It's a really weird. This is the holy one who is drawing near to us. The prophets of Baal have the opportunity at that point yeah. to recognize that their, quote, religion is not about slashing themselves in trying to do things, trying trying harder, yeah. they have the opportunity to realize that there is a living God. Mm-hmm. They don't make it up themselves as they go along. They aren't making up the ritual. They aren't trying these, uh, you know, again, trying to slash themselves in order to bring down fire. There is a God that will bring down fire. It was their opportunity there to repent of their own man-made religion and turn to the religion of ancient Israel. Yeah, and I think... The, the fire on the holy mountain on Mount Sinai. Yeah. You remember the, the one yeah, that caused everyone to tremble. It, and, and the Lord, true. And, and what does Moses say at different times? The Lord has done this one because he wants you to experience the holy fear of God. Yes. And I think sometimes it's so hard in the modern world to say, we can't put God and fear in the same sentence you know what i mean that i mean because god is love and there's that passage that says you know perfect love casts out all fear but that's sure. sur- that's servile fear right is it not is it yeah it's that oh god you're scared of god and you know he's mad at me or something like that that's not what we're talking about yeah, it's not that it's not it's not minimizing the the trauma of the holy yeah. I mean, when you encounter the holy one there is this sense of disruption that you're yeah. uh, I, I think of isaiah uh, saying uh woe unto me for i am un done, or I'm unraveling, or I'm not integrated anymore, I'm disintegrating. That's what the the experience of the holiness of God does to us. It it begins to rework who we are. We'll come back and talk more about the fire of God. Peter Herbeck, my guest, Receiving Fire, a wonderful uh, little booklet, which we'll have available for you, too. Receiving Fire, again, my guest, Peter Herbeck of Renewal Ministries. 
Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss what happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent. When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Here's the new challenge. At least one hour a week in front of the Blessed Sacrament with the goal of an hour a day in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I had a guy come up to me and he says, Father, you know, I'm doing a lot of things. I'm, I'm in a men's fellowship. I pray with my wife every day. I go to Mass every Sunday and, and usually a couple times during the week. I read Scripture. He goes, I want more. I said, do you pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament? He said, outside of Mass, no. I said, I think that's the more. See, all these saints, these are the ones who surround us. These are the ones who ran before us. These are the ones who fought well, who kept the faith. They would tell you, as would every single saint in heaven right now, you cannot run this race if you don't spend time with the Master. Whatever else we're doing, it's second, third, and fourth. First things need to be first. And the first thing is to be with the Master. And the Master is Jesus. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. 
The best. 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 Of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 33. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Peter Herbeck of Renewal Ministries, Receiving Fire, the name of a booklet that he just published that I uh, was looking at earlier today and thought this would be great uh, to talk about. Uh, people can get this easily, right? Yeah, get it at renewalministries.net slash rf. So renewalministries.net slash rf, or just go to Renewal Ministries, go to the store, click on the store, and you'll see booklets, and you can just find it there as well. The, the booklet starts out, uh, with uh, Jesus' statement, I came to cast fire upon the earth, and would it were already kindled, and then goes to the experience of the Apostle John uh, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, where he sees Christ, and he's so overwhelmed that he fell at his feet as though dead. And then it moves on to talk about his eyes as flames of fire. And you spend time talking about what Jesus actually sees when he looks on us, when his gaze comes upon us. And yeah. this is, on one hand, this can be discomforting. On the other hand, once you realize it's the Christ himself, you can learn to also cast that kind of gaze upon your own inner life. Yeah. You know? And what the Lord, you know, Scripture is telling us, what the church teaches us, that Jesus has come to cast the fire of the Holy Spirit. He yeah. has come to make it possible for human beings to become temples of the living God, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Paul always asks us, it's always a good thing to remember, test your faith. Don't you know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? And this is what what it meant. So Jesus went through everything, and uh, Pope Benedict described, said, you know, the Pentecost, Jesus' giving of the Holy Fire and the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire, the burning love of God, the life of the Spirit, he said, this is the consummation of Jesus' mission. The, yeah. Jesus came not only to die to save, for, save us from our sins, but he did that so he could one day return to the Father in human flesh, and, and now the new Adam, who's, who's siring a new humanity at the right hand of the Father, the new creation has begun in Jesus in glory. Humanity's actually glorified, right? Yeah. We who've fallen from glory, raised to glory, then he pours out the Holy Spirit, which is the glory of God, begins to come to us. In our baptism, we're given that living presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a purifying fire, it's a and so when Jesus sees us with his eyes flaming fire, is I think it's helpful for us to understand that nothing escapes his gaze. Isn't that it? He sees right to the core of our being. Nothing is hidden. Like we hide a lot from ourselves and from other people yeah. about ourselves, right? But nothing escapes the pure, fiery gaze of God. And that should cause us to walk again now in healthy fear of the Lord. That's a really good thing. Nothing lies hidden to the one whose gaze is upon us. He knows That's a good us. thing. He yeah. knows us better than we know ourselves. Yeah. And his gaze is meant to help us get a better understanding of what's going on inside of me here. What do I yeah. need to work on? What? How do I react? Uh, so that's why I say that the, the gaze uh, of Christ on us is, well, it, there may be some little bit of apprehension, yeah. you know. Um, the truth is, it's meant to bring you deeper into understanding who you are, and also deeper into understanding how Christ is conforming you 
to his own image and likeness. Yeah, it's, it's this a, is a dynamic experiential oh, it thing. It is. It is. And his 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 flaming eyes of fire. It's not anger. Right. It's right, the pure, right. holy, That's good. That's good. holy love of God. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing lies hidden, again, from his gaze. And so he sees our failures, but he looks on us with tender mercy in that fire. And he's saying, come to me. I want to heal you. I want to free you from the bondages that you're in. I want to free you from the self-hatred that's dominating your life. I want to free you from the compromise that you're in, the addictions that you're trapped in, the false loves, the, the idols you're pursuing. I see it all for what it is. Yeah. And I want to help you. You know what I mean? I And I want you to receive the fire of my love that's going to purify that. So that yeah. I think one of the one of the key points I'm trying to make in this little booklet, Al, is that you know, God's love, this the, the fire of God's burning love is grace and transformation and healing and life for all who receive it. But for those who refuse it, it actually is becomes a purifying judgment yes. that comes on human beings because God wants to remove everything that hinders love, that hinders human beings from walking in and receiving the love of God. You quote Pope Benedict here. Yeah. And it's it's a magnificent quote. Yeah. It really puts this in perspective. Christ's entire mission, Pope Benedict XVI wrote, Christ's entire mission is summed up in this, to baptize us in the Holy Spirit, to free us from the slavery of death, and to open heaven to us. That is, access to the true and full life that will be a plunging ever anew into the vastness of being in which we are simply overwhelmed with joy. Yeah. That's the end that yeah. we're moving towards. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And I think the God will do, and God in his perfect love is going to do whatever it takes to give us a maximum chance to wake up and to receive his love. I personally think, Al, that some of what we're seeing in the world today, you know, the shaking that's going on, you know, another way to look at this, Hebrews chapter 12 says, you know, God will once again shake the nations to awaken the nations and to teach them to cling to what is unshakable which is the Son of God alone, right? Standing on the rock, holding, clinging right. to Christ instead of holding on to what is unshakable. And and there's the, the judgments of God in history, it actually happens, it comes. When God's judgments come, and Isaiah said, you know that when God's judgments are in the land, men learn righteousness. Mm. You know, yeah. and sometimes that's the only way human beings come to see and wake up. And so uh, that's part of what the Lord will do. And I, I think sometimes the writing the booklet helped me think about like dimensions of fire, like fire spreads. Yeah. Well, the Holy Spirit imparts God's fire to anyone who wants it. You know, it's spreading all over the world. It's very much out of our control, church, right? too. Yeah. You know, fire purifies. It consumes and removes the impurities that God wants to remove from our lives. Fire destroys. God's enemies will be destroyed, right? It's right there in the scripture. It's right there in the book of Revelation, what's going to happen ultimately to those who set themselves against God. Fire even terrifies. You know, a few things terrify us quite like a fire can, yeah, yeah. you know, that, but, but that's a, sometimes to regain sanity and to rightly order our lives, our minds, our wills, and our decisions back to God, it, some kind of serious purifying and shaking happens. I think it's coming on the world now, Al, in different ways. Like We're, we're at a place where our governments are using their, the strength of the law and the force to say everyone must affirm 
you know, that a man can be a woman, that a man can have a baby, that there's a disconnection from reality on so many levels. There's the panic that's in the culture, Al, the people, you know, who, when we drift away from God, our minds become darkened, Scripture says, our senseless minds become darkened, we fall back into slavery, and look what's happening in our cultures. Look at what our quote-unquote Catholic president and other people in leadership are leading. People are saying, well, um, people ought to have a right to kill babies all the way up to their first breath. Yeah. They're pushing euthanasia. They're redefining marriage. All these things that are um, incredibly offensive to God, and they're calling it wisdom, and they're calling it light. Calling it maturity. Yeah, yeah. The, the thinking that, oh, this is, this is actually the maturing of our culture, rather than the uh, return to a barbarism. Yeah. Out of which we had uh, passed. Yeah, uh, this is a back. These are backward moves, not forward yeah. moves. I remember uh, I was telling you a story uh, years ago. I was reading this book of Revelation, chapter one passage. We talked about Alan. I was talking to a group about a hundred or so. Oh yeah, college students. Yeah, yeah. And um, I I had been praying on that passage. You're an old preacher. Remember the yeah. day you get a you get a passage yeah. and you're going to preach to the congregation, <laughs> and God puts something burning in your heart, and you go, Wow, this is alive. I think this is really something. Thing God yeah. wants me to talk about, you right, know, right. and so I'm thinking of Jesus' eyes flaming fire, and I felt like the Lord said, "Read that passage to to them." And then I had all these wonderful ideas of what I was going to say about it, like really inspire them, you know. And I'm reading it and just talking about just the image of the Holy One of God, mm-hmm. yeah. and all of a sudden, like 15, 20 minutes into it, students started weeping. Yeah. Some people, they went on their, went down to their knees. Three or four of them went to the back of the room, Al, laid flat on their face, and some of them started wailing and repenting. And what happened was, I mean, I'm trying to say, hey, no, come back. The best part that I put together isn't even here yet. It was so clear. It, had not, it wasn't about me at all, unfortunately. It was one of those moments I had to, have a, had to wake up about that. But it was a, a moment of the holy presence of God coming on a group of young people who were battling with sin. Sure. You know, and some of them were probably trapped in some of it pretty seriously. And God's holiness drew near, and it led them to repent at a very deep level. And they felt the holiness of God, and it put a little holy fear in them. And I, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't like thundered, I wasn't yelling, shouting, nothing like that was even happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, it's like I was just watching something happen as opposed to getting something to happen. Yeah. You know what Good. I mean? Yes. And yes. so, it, to me, it was like, I, I'm, I, I, you know, I asked the Lord, like, how come you don't do that more often, Lord, in just life? But there's something there, and I think some of that's more that's coming for the life of the church, for great purification and holiness, and for the sake of the salvation of the world. This is a question that I think every Christian ends up asking after they've been walking with Christ for a while. It's exactly that. Lord, I saw you heal here, Yeah. but why not over there? Yeah. Or, Lord, I really saw you come alive uh, at that Bible study or that uh, the, the service, but I was better. I thought I was better prepared the week before, and you didn't do anything. Yes. You know, and so you. And I think really, I think the benefit of that. Well, I mean, the way we can get a benefit from that ambiguity or that lack of where we simply don't know. We've got a big question mark. Is it? It keeps us humble. Yeah. It lets us know that. Um, these matters of the sacred are not under our control. Mm-hmm. They're not a product of our own uh, being. They emanate from the being of another. 
you know. And I think that uh, that's why these passages, uh, he, he John, you know, he fell at his feet as though dead. Well, you know throughout the history of the Christian faith, you've mm-hmm. got saints and martyrs and mystics and preachers and teachers who have while they have not had the same visionary experience that John did, they have had the experience of the holy, and yeah. they've thrown themselves on the floor. Exactly. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And, yeah. and so this is part of the experiential dimension of the Christian faith, and we should rejoice in it. Yeah, for uh, sure. There are certain kinds of Catholics who I think are embarrassed by it. Uh, let's come back. We'll continue talking. Peter Herbeck, my guest. We're talking about Receiving Fire, a wonderful booklet that Peter has just written. Uh, you can get the booklet at renewalministries.net slash rf. That's renewalministries.net slash rf. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Crest in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. What do we mean by intercessory prayer? The Catholic Catechism defines intercessory prayer as asking on behalf of another. It is a prayer attuned to God's mercy. It is a prayer of petition that leads us to pray as Jesus did. Jesus is the one intercessor with the Father on behalf of all mankind, especially sinners, because, says the Catechism, Jesus is able for all time to save the souls who draw near to God through him. Jesus lives to make intercession for such souls. 
When one prays intercessory prayer, he or she is looking out not just for one's own interest, but for the interest of others, even for one's enemies. The intercession of Christians recognizes no boundaries, says the Catechism. Prayers are extended for all men, for kings or for persecutors, and even for the salvation of those who reject the gospel. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I come from the other side of the tracks, see? My uncle used to have slot machines. Put one nickel in and it emptied. And I brought him home in a bag, and my mother looked at me. Where did you get all that money? I said, I won him. You didn't win him. He fixed the machine. I didn't care if he fixed the machine or not, you know? EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Advent is here, and it's a new church year. What is your favorite liturgical season? That's our question in this week's Pull of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Pull of the Week to let us know. The best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number 33. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Peter Herbeck of Renewal Ministries. We're looking over a booklet that he just published called Receiving Fire, and it's available at renewalministries.net slash RF, Receiving Fire, RF. The booklet is about receiving fire, so really you're opening opportunity to encouraging uh, people to take seriously what God has offered in personal experience here. I, I keep emphasizing experience because the New Testament is about what happened in the first century with the coming of Jesus, mm-hmm. the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the formation of new communities, St. Paul's constant exhortations to the different churches. Uh, don't you know? How did you receive the Spirit? There's all These are experiential questions that he's asking them, and oftentimes we forget that what we're dealing with there is not a bunch of legislative texts, but yeah. these are experiential texts that we're dealing with. So we have, in the sacraments, for instance, the Eucharist. It has, because we receive the Eucharist as often as we can, or at least we try, a micro-routine. But you have a quote here from John Paul II that lets us know what's at stake in the Eucharist. Yeah, he says here, he says, through our communion in his body and blood... Christ also grants us his spirit. St. Ephraim writes, He called the bread his living body and filled it with himself and his spirit. He who eats it with faith eats fire and spirit. Wow. You know, when we, when we go to Mass on Sunday, we, we, we word and sacrament, right? So this, yeah. the sacrament that we receive, we receive it in faith. It's, it's the fire, the spirit that communicates his life. And then I was thinking of uh, the prophet Jeremiah saying, Is not my word like fire? Right? The Word of God is fire. Why? And why? how can words have fire? How can bread have fire? Because Jesus has come to cast fire on the earth, and he says this in John chapter 16, he said he's going to send the Spirit. That beautiful section in the, in the uh, Last Supper discourse, when he tells his apostles the trouble that's about to come, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But believe in me, believe in the Father. He said, I, I will send you my Spirit. He will manifest to you who I am. He's going to reveal who I am to you, and he's going to remind you everything that I've taught you, right? And so 
the Catechism has some beautiful paragraphs that are worth meditating on now related to what we're talking about. 690, for example, it says, Jesus is Christ that is anointed because the Spirit is his anointing. And everything that occurs from the incarnation on derives from the fullness of the Spirit that's in Jesus. When Christ is finally glorified, he can in turn send the Spirit from his place with the Father to those who believe in him. He communicates to them his glory. That is the Holy Spirit who glorifies him. So in baptism and confirmation in these places, he's communicating his glory, the glory that now clothes him. So we need to see this. The human race was made for God's glory. And through original sin, we fell from God's glory. Jesus becomes one of us to do what? To now lead us back to glory. Right. Humanity's now glorified in Jesus. The catechism really building on scripture says it very clearly. The Holy Spirit communicates to us the glory of God and given to us in paragraph 667. Jesus Christ, having entered the sanctuary of heaven once and for all, intercedes constantly for us as the mediator who assures us of the permanent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Interesting, the permanent outpouring. The permanent outpouring of the life of God in us. It's it's the Holy Spirit that makes the Eucharist the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that animates that living Word of God that penetrates our heart. So if we don't approach, your point earlier, if we don't approach this in faith that is awakened, our mind is alert, we're expecting, we're trusting, we're leaning into God, I'm encountering the Lord here, and then say, Lord, you know, be it done unto me according to your Word. Lord, I receive your Word. I receive your body and blood. So faith is an important element of receiving, of trusting, yeah. of saying yes to. We got to be careful of routine. We got to be careful of presumption. Yeah. We got to be yeah. careful for them, you know, because, you know, you go to a lot of mass, you go to mass every day or many yeah. days. I mean, it's, it's like it's routine. Have, yes, all right? of us have done this. I mean, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Or like you could, you, the reading is done at mass and then all of a sudden you go like, what was that? What was that? <laughs> I don't think I heard one thing that was said, you know, it's all the time. But but when you think about when you have your Bible in your hand, friends at home, you know, and this is the, the, the content of the conversation the Lord wants to have with us as we're abiding in him. Imagine just think about like it's fire. It's this burning. This thing's alive. Yeah, it's it's not just good. a document I have to study. As I read this word, this is God. This is Jesus, the risen one in glory, speaking to me through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking fire into my life, purifying, transforming, love, right? All of that that's present there. Let me, let me ask you just to, again, give us your best read of the situation. There's no doubt that the Catholic Church, really globally, has undergone great purification and great humiliation over the last 20, 25 years. And um, it doesn't seem too far-fetched to think that judgment begins with God's own household. Mm-hmm. Again, people can speculate on this. Do you think that we are seeing with this judgment that's fallen upon the Church, do you see that as a precursor? to a wider judgment that was going to fall upon the, the land. Yeah, I, I really do. I believe with all my heart, I think that's what's happening. And that the the revelation of, you know, the sins of the church and yeah. what the Lord has allowed is the sins of the church to be revealed. And it's caused a lot of pain. It's caused, hopefully, the key to it all, it's meant to cause us to repent. Yeah, yeah. 
to come back. I mean, there's a lot of compromise. What gets revealed, there's a lot of compromise. There's a lot of lukewarmness. There's a lot of indifference. There's a lot of worldliness in the church. And what this is about, fundamentally, is that the church is the salt and light of the world. But the salt can go flat. Remember what Jesus said? If it goes flat... You're no good to me. He said, if, you, if you're not burning with my love for one another yeah. and for the lost, if you're kind of indifferent about all that, this is what I thirst for souls. And you don't even think about it. You know what I mean? Because you're lukewarm. You're worldly. You, you're more interested in yourself. So the Lord has to come and purify the church. And it doesn't have to be big. You know what I mean? The Lord's pruning the church and he's cutting off dead wood. He wants to get to the place of who everybody's weak and broken everybody battles with sin but who wants the life of the king who wants the burning love of god who wants to uh you know see what he sees and feel what he feels and move where he wants us to go and that's what the lord is doing to purify the church so she can be salt and light because the lord's heart breaks for the salvation of the world he came to seek and save the lost. We belong to him. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And the day of Pentecost, what did he say before the Holy Spirit came? He told the apostles before the ascension, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses. He didn't say you shall receive power, then you'll be comfortable, cozy, kind of, you know, live, follow your own bliss, do what you want to do. No, you become my disciple, and I'm going to give you the fire that's in me. And that fire is love for my father. That fire is love for his will. That fire is love for neighbor. That fire is rightly ordered love for the self. You know, how many people walk around the street every day we're battling with self-hatred, oh, lack yeah. of healthy love? Yeah. You know, he wants to order our loves and free us so we're not preoccupied with ourselves and our fears and our discouragements and our depression and everything else and our idols to purify us so that we can then he wants to teach us how to learn to love our neighbors and actually to love people who hate us. And this is the heart of, this is the, the depth of the incredibly uh, unique teaching of Jesus. Yeah. Love those who hate you. Lord, I, I have a hard time loving people who love me. <laughs> much less, yeah. But he can only, it's his heart burning in us that can do that. I want to just read something from Father Joseph Ratzinger from 1969. Okay. Yeah. This is a German radio broadcast, but I think it fits in here. He said, the future of the church can and will issue from those whose roots are deep and who live from the pure fullness of their faith. It will not issue from those who accommodate themselves merely to the passing moment, or from those who merely criticize others and assume that they themselves are infallible. Uh, Nor will it issue from those who take the easier road, who sidestep the passion of faith, declaring false and obsolete, tyrannous and legalistic, all that makes demands upon men, that hurts them and compels them to sacrifice themselves. To put this more positively... The future of the church, once again, as always, will be reshaped by saints, by men, that is, whose minds probe deeper than the slogans of the day, who see more than others see because their lives embrace a wider reality. Unselfishness, which makes men free, is attained only through the patience of small daily acts of self-denial. By this daily passion, which alone reveals to a man in how many ways he is enslaved by his own ego. By this daily passion and by it alone, a man's eyes are slowly opened. And he's, okay, he goes on, this, but my, my point there is that 
the future of the church as we pass through this time of judgment is going to rest it's on those whose roots are deep and who live from the pure fullness of their faith. It's not coming from accommodation to the world. No, exactly. And the only way we can resist accommodation from the world is the encounter with God. Mm-hmm. We have to know there's something more than what surrounds us. Yeah. You know, we need something from outside the culture, so to speak, you know. And that's what, uh, so you write receiving fire because that's what has to happen. Yeah, and I think when, when everybody notices the world is shaking. Yeah. I mean, the, the war in Ukraine, and, and, and that looks like it's escalating and yeah. could potentially get to something even much worse. New spy balloons. St- I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just <laughs> everybody knows something, something's going on, and things are shaking, and the church seems weak, and all kinds of things that are you find upsetting say, well, what should we do? Declare, friends, first of all, you know, lift up your eyes to the heavens where your help comes from. Your help comes from the Lord. Turn to him now, yeah. not like just huddle down in fear, but look at him and then begin to say, Lord, uh, I want to receive what you have for me, Lord. I want to go all the, I want to go all in in this moment. I know something epic is happening in the world and it fills me with fear, or angst or whatever. Yeah. But I want to pay attention to you and receive what you have for me right now. I don't want to miss anything of the assignment that you're giving me in this hour to yes, cooperate yes. with the work. I declare, I know this is in your hands. Nothing escapes it. And so I want to be rightly aligned with you now, Lord. And be like St. Francis. So I love that image. He used to kneel before the cross regularly and say, Lord, he'd look at him and say, Lord, please tell me, who are you and who am I? <laughs> You know what I mean? That's, that's, you tell me who I am. I'm done. I'm that's done a trying to make up dialogue here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm so tired of making up who I think I'm supposed to be, and everybody's making up who they are, and everybody's yeah. making up their own reality. Lord, I know you want our attention now. Repentance means turn to Him. Lord, I put before you my time, my talent, my treasure, my business, my family, my heart. My whole being, I know soon, you tell me in Scripture, I'll be dead soon. Life is short. It's a breath. It's a passing shadow. I don't want to die having missed the significance of this moment when the nations are troubled and the church is struggling and you're calling every one of your disciples now to unite our mind and heart to you. And you've given us the fire of the Spirit to purify our minds, to purify our hearts, to give us the power we need, the grace we need, to move in your will now, Lord. Use us for your glory. That's a prayer he will answer. So live in expectation. Live with your eyes open. And ask yourself, okay, how's he fulfilling that prayer? That's right. Great, Peter, thanks. Uh, The book, Receiving Fire, it's available at renewalministries.net slash rf. Again, Peter, thanks. Enjoy. God bless you. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Ninth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. 
We already discussed in the sixth commandment the problems of sexual sins themselves, but what the Lord is teaching here is rooted in the word covet. To covet means to inordinately or inappropriately desire something or someone. And in this case, the Lord is saying to us that we are in no way to covet, to look with lust at another person, particularly our neighbor's wife, but others in general, and that therefore all pornography and things like that have to go, all entertaining of lustful thoughts has to go. And God can help us by his grace to do that. And therefore, in this commandment, he summons us to take authority over our thought life and our sexual passions. The ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Good afternoon, and thanks again for listening to Cresta in the Afternoon today. Once again, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Northern Apostle Radio in Marquette, Michigan, celebrating 19 years as part of the EWTN team. Congratulations to Faye and Tim Presley and everybody else at WNOA in Marquette, Michigan, Northern Apostle Radio. As you've noticed probably over the last you know several months, every just about every day, we're congratulating somebody else on an anniversary. So thanks for being part of the EWTN family, and thanks for everybody who supports Catholic Radio. Uh, if you enjoyed today's countdown, you can find more about it at AveMariaRadio.net. We'll have Peter's material there. We'll have the list of the worst go decisions of all time. And we're going off air now. Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. We'll be back Monday, continuing our look at the top interviews of 2023 on Crest in the Afternoon. Until then, continue to have a blessed Advent and a great weekend, and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.